Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Today on The Roy Green Show podcast, Canada's 44th general election began a week ago today. What have been the highlights and lowlights of the opening week? The first week of the pandemic election is in the books. Which party leader has come out of the gate the strongest and who has some work to do? A former Afghan interpreter who assisted Canadian armed forces in Afghanistan. He's still working to get those who helped Canadian troops out of the country unscathed. Now, it's one thing to evacuate Afghans from their war-torn country, but what are the challenges with resettling them? And the Taliban claims it will respect women's rights within the norms of Sharia law and forgive those who resisted them. Unsurprisingly, many remain skeptical. All that's coming up here on the Roy Green Show podcast. One week ago today, the writ was dropped, and that triggered Canada's 44th general election. The main party leaders fanned out across the country on this seventh day of the campaign. Trudeau's in Atlantic Canada. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole is on the polar opposite end of this nation. He's in New Westminster, B.C., Jagmeet Singh in Toronto. He's marking the 10th anniversary of the death of former NDP leader Jack Layton. And uh, we also know which of the main party leaders are going to take part in the leaders' debates on September 8th and the 9th. Hint, not everyone's invited. We get more from Global's Dave Bowles. Justin Trudeau, Aaron O'Toole, Jagmeet Singh, Yves-Francois Blanchet, and Annemie Paul will debate each other twice this election cycle. The Leaders' Debates Commission invited the leaders of the Liberal, Conservative, New Democratic, Green, and Bloc parties to the debates September 8th and 9th. Criteria states that in order to be invited, the party must have at least one elected MP, its candidates in the most recent general election, to have received at least 4% of the eligible vote, or have had a national level of support at at least 4% five days following the general election call. Both the People's Party and Maverick Party were not invited as they did not meet these standards. The French debate goes September 8th, followed by the English debate September 9th. David Bowles, Global News. Thank you, David. Let's bring in our first guest of the day. Dr. Lori Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Dr. Turnbull, good day. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you? Not too bad. Um, So maybe we'll start with some of the highlights, some of the lowlights of the opening week of this 36-day campaign today. And we'll begin with Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. His uh, campaign got off to a somewhat bumpy start, I would think, with the Willy Wonka attack ad on Twitter against Liberal leader Justin Trudeau. The video was heavily criticized, rightfully so. Did it damage O'Toole's image in any way? Um, I mean... I think it it kind of did for the moment, but I'm not really sure that 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 damage will last. I don't really get the sense that it does, particularly if nobody decides to run any ads like that again. If that's repeated, it's going to do damage. But I think probably um, it was really smart for the party to put their platform down this week. I think O'Toole had the best week by far. And so I think probably enough minds are turning to other things that Maybe voters will give him a pass on that one. Um, but yeah, I, I think probably he can he can kind of get over that. You mentioned the uh, launch of the party's platform, uh, which includes a wide range of election promises, as most platforms do. However, it was a little overshadowed in the way the document was presented and showcased. A magazine-like cover featuring O'Toole uh, in a pose that many likened him to a home reno icon, Mike Holmes. What was the purpose of that, do you think? 
Okay, so I was just as surprised by everybody else. That is so not what you think, as far as I'm concerned. When you think of Evan O'Toole, you don't think of this guy on the cover of a magazine. Yeah. But, you know, maybe, maybe that was smart, because everybody's talking about his campaign. Everybody's talking about his platform. So maybe that was the question of them saying, hey, look, look at Aaron O'Toole, right? Like, don't, don't spend all your time looking at Trudeau. Look over here. And once they got that, and we went through the first sort of 24 hours of everybody talking about what the heck that was, everybody started talking about his platform. And he's been doing an announcement a day. It hasn't all been smooth. But you know what I mean? Like, there, he has momentum, absolutely. And he's, he, what he's put up in that platform is a different kind of conservative way forward. This is not Stephen Harper's conservative party. And I don't think it is just because of COVID. I think it's, it's, you know, Aaron O'Toole's figuring out where he wants to take the party. He's offside with his caucus and offside with his base on a number of things, which to me shows, you know, he's, he's all in, right? Like he's the leader and he's given this a real shot. And he's, he's managing the things like the carbon pricing and things like that, that the base doesn't love, but he's going to have to sort of try to bring people around. How much is the O'Toole campaign focused on trying to distance him from what voters saw in former party leader Andrew Scheer three years ago. And in saying that, you know, O'Toole said earlier this week that he was pro-choice. The Tory platform has a section about protecting the, quote, conscious rights of healthcare professionals. There seems to be a little bit of a disconnect. I know. I know what you mean. And I mean, the, the Andrew, that's a really interesting question. And the Andrew Scheer piece is an interesting one because he actually got more votes than Justin Trudeau the last time. So it's not like you don't necessarily want to just write that whole thing off as a bad experience, because even though he didn't come first in terms of seats, he did quite well in terms of the popular vote. So clearly he was onto something. I think O'Toole is trying to do a few things at once. He's clearly trying to build his own brand. And that's, you know, that's the image building. That's the, you know, he's got pictures of himself on Twitter jogging all the time, things like that. Like he's trying to get kind of get people to get to know him personally and develop trust with people. He's also trying to pitch a tent to, that will bring more people under it. He's trying to, to come across as an alternative for progressive voters who are thinking about rebuilding after COVID and who are worrying about um, social na- safety nets being supportive through rising cost of life or cost of living. He's also thinking about the base. And so I think that's where you see some of these contradictions, if you can put it that way, in the platform, in that he's trying to appease the parts of the party that are going to stress out when he's moving in a different direction, when he's talking about carbon pricing, when he's talking about being pro-choice, he has to feed something back to the base to say, no, no, like, yes, we're pro-choice, but doctors will still be able to, you know, they've got conscience rights. So it's, to me, it's a trade-off. Like, he's trying to build something and keep going, get more supporters, but not lose his base. O'Toole was also quick to bring up ethics in this campaign. He reminded Canadians about the numerous scandals in the Trudeau government, uh, SNC-Lavalin, the Wii fiasco. I know there's a few more in there. Uh, a, recent, a recent Ipsos poll for Global News shows that most respondents, 39%, see Trudeau as the best candidate for prime minister, regardless of all these scandals. However, 44% do believe that he will say anything to get elected. Uh, O'Toole came in at 25%. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was 23%. It seems, you know, given those numbers, that voters don't really care about ethics. That's not really high on their priority list. I mean, it's, it's interesting, like, because we only get to vote, you know, as, as infrequently as we do, although it seems kind of frequent these days when people call elections two years into their mandate, but, like, voters have to pack all of their choices, all of their preferences into that one X on the ballot for one candidate representing one party. And so when it comes to that sort of architecture of priorities and and how are you making that final decision about who you vote for? Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that ethical transgressions and, um, you know, 
scandals and clouds around you are probably not ultimately the decision maker. People are more interested in jobs, healthcare, things like that. At the same time, though, I think the, you know, Aaron O'Toole is trying to move that needle in that, again, in that kind of two-pronged way. Get people to start thinking about the fact that Justin Trudeau is not the only choice for prime minister. There is another way. And then the second part of that is give them that alternative because it's no point for Aaron O'Toole to, you know, throw shade at Justin Trudeau to have votes move to Jigmeet Singh. That's not what he's trying to do. Our first guest is Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University here on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick in for Roy today. What do you make of Jagmeet Singh's opening week? Yeah, like I think he's, he's, he looks very comfortable. Um, he's going through campaign stops with a lot of energy. He's definitely resonating on that, what seems to be quite a central issue in the campaign around affordable housing and cost of living. Um, his poll numbers don't seem to be coming up, you know, extraordinarily. You know, like we can see the, the, the space between the Liberals and the Conservatives tightening, the NDP not making the same types of gains. But um, I think for him, like it's, it's really about being able to go and get, get somewhere in the ridings that are winnable. So I don't think we're going to see him spending a lot of time like really stretching himself thin for the next 30 days. I think it's going to be more what are the 50 or so ridings that we should really focus on and then see if we can do, do some good there. Um, I think, yeah, like I, I, I'm not sure whether he's still sort of grappling with people tend to vote strategically. That doesn't help the NDP from the electoral system's perspective, but, you know, he's still got, still got four weeks left. I think it's safe to say that most Canadians did not want this election. Um, do you think this is going to hurt the Trudeau campaign at the ballot box? I think it's hurting him now, and he needs to pivot. Like last week, the conversations around uh, the timing of the election struck me as being kind of dead-end conversations from a political perspective, because they were all about the Constitution. The Governor General should say no. Well, she's not going to do that, right? Like, he's, a, he's a, a Prime Minister with the confidence of the House, and it's almost two years into the mandate. She's not going to make history by saying no. She'll give him the dissolution. But now, the conversation is pivoted around, okay, if you wanted this election, what did you want it for? What do you want to do? And he hasn't put that central ballot question in the window yet. We don't see a fully... Um, fleshed out plan from the Liberals like we do from the Conservatives. I think he's put so much in the budget, you know, and he started doing some of those things that it's like, why didn't you just keep doing what you're doing then? And you had the support of Jigmeet Singh. And he runs the risk that people get really irritated with him. And he could come back with a worse, um, you know, worse situation than he had before, which would be, I think, you know, definition of worst case scenario for them. In saying that, incumbents usually have an advantage in an election, not all the time, of course. Does incumbency and a pandemic mean that we could be looking at a somewhat similar seating chart in the House of Commons come September? You know what? Like a couple of months ago, I would have said yes. But after what happened in Nova Scotia this week, it seems to me that voters are thinking differently about the pandemic. It's not, it's not the same as the B.C. election and the, especially the, New, the Newfoundland election, which was truly in the eye of the storm. Um, vaccination rates are high and, you know, there are still some, some jurisdictions that have growing infection rates, but I think people are looking ahead now. And in Nova Scotia, the voters defeated uh, a liberal government with a conservative majority. So, you know, I think voters are, are willing to look around. So the liberals should be worried after what they saw in Nova Scotia? Not because the vote, like, not because Rankin, Ian Rankin's fate and Justin Trudeau's fate are tied. Not at all, right? Like Nova Scotia's circumstance was, was its own thing. I think it shows that voters are, yes, like they're not necessarily going to thank you for all the things you did for them during the pandemic, nor are they going to assume that because we're in a crisis, we have to keep the same leadership. That's, that's like those things are not going to win you an election.
One more question for Dr. Lori Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, we heard earlier this week from Chief Electoral Officer Stefan Perot, who said that he expects millions of Canadians will cast their ballots by mail as a result of the pandemic. We may also see a, a historically low voter turnout next month. How could these two factors play into the final tally? Yeah, like I think if people are voting throughout the campaign, you know, that means that the parties have to put extra effort into mobilizing the vote all the time, which is going to be tough, right? Like they really have to be thinking about the different strategies um, that will that will help them ultimately get the most votes that they can. I, that's why I think O'Toole was smart to bring his campaign down this week to like let everybody know what's going on. And then, you know, regardless of when you decide you just want to cash in your chips and vote, you know exactly what Aaron O'Toole wants to do. I think um, low voter turnout, like... It's a summer election. It's a it's kind of a pandemic election. It, there may really be extra effort required to make sure that that parties mobilize the vote, which might help the larger parties, the ones that have more of a kind of well-oiled machine over time, if that makes any sense. But we'll see. You know, like we'll we'll, we'll see how it all happens. It's 338 pieces, right? Like the national polls only tell us so much. It's about who comes first in each of those writings. One more for you, actually. You know, come the debates uh, that are September 8th, 9th, could one of Trudeau or O'Toole manage to win the election before those debates happen, or are those debates going to be key to how Canadians uh, mark that X? I don't think the debates are what they were before, right? Because of social media, because of, you know, we, we really have opportunities to hear from the leaders all the time. I don't know necessarily that um, the debates are as critical as they might have been, say, 30 years ago. But at the same time, it's an opportunity, like the, the, the value of the debate, I think, is to see how the leaders interact with one another instead of just talking, you know, you know, through media or through right directly to us. And so there might be some interesting exchanges, between, like Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau is going to be on the hop for those because he's going to have you know, a challenge from the left, from the, from Singh, from the right, from O'Toole. In Quebec, he's going to get it from Blanchette. Like, it's, it, this is going to be interesting because he's going to, you know, in various ways, he's going to be the one, I think, at that moment to defend, again, why we're doing this at all and, uh, you know, why, why his plans are better than any, anyone else's. I can see the social media memes already. First week of Canada's pandemic election is now in the books, and you know, some sound bites from party leaders have resonated with Canadians. Others have fallen flat and may have hurt their party's chances at the polls. This election is about who you think can get us out of the recession and rebuild the economy. Who do you think can secure the future for all Canadians? So we have a choice in this election, a new Democrat government that's going to make sure any company that abused the system, that took public money and then paid out dividends to their shareholders or increased executive pay, that we're going to stop that, we're going to make them make sure they reimburse that. A re-elected Liberal government will extend and introduce new emergency supports for businesses and workers to make sure we build back better for everyone. And that starts with good middle-class jobs. So which party leader has come out of the gate the strongest and who has some work to do? Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken is traveling with Liberal Leader Justin Trudeau and joins us now to discuss this. David, how are you? I'm pretty good, and you know what? It's That little uh, the music segue you played at the beginning of the hour here, that was Paul McCartney and Wings Jet. I've been doing a lot of jetting around with uh, last week I was with Trudeau tonight, I'm hopping. I'm in Ottawa right now, but hopping on a plane to go to Montreal with Singh. But speaking of jets and jets, just a little campaign trivia. 
um, you know, all the parties, uh, you know, hire a plane to carry them around from somebody. And the liberals are using a plane that they've leased from Air Canada. And the liberal plane, when it's not carrying Trudeau around, it's carrying around the Winnipeg Jets. That's the team that I was, or that's the plane I was on last week, the Winnipeg Jets plane. So we were playing Jet from Paul McCartney and the Wings because that was all about the Jets. Anyways, just one little sort of campaign trivia there. Did they leave over uh, or leave behind any hockey sticks for some political stick handling? They didn't, but I did hear from some very clever political strategists of mine who when they heard that the Trudeau team was on the Winnipeg Jets plane, hockey fans will know that the Winnipeg Jets came into the playoffs a heavily favored and yet, through poor performance, <laughs> lousy strategy, got swept by the Canadians in the first round. So a lot of people took that as some sort of maybe omen for the Liberals. Who knows? In the 2019 campaign, I mean, just to talk about planes and how goofy they can be, they had a bus hit their plane, a bus, the bus carrying the media to the plane. The bus hit their plane, and the plane had to be, you know, it's all decked out with Team Trudeau colors on it. And it had to be sidelined for a couple of weeks while they inspected it and fixed it. So for the Trudeau Liberals, it was a successful week just to start the week and end the week with the plane that they'd hired from Canada. <laughs> uh, other than the, you know, the, the, the plane woes, I guess, or the bad omens, how would you describe the first week for the Liberal leader? You know, I, I don't think that Trudeau had a bad week. Um, I don't think he had a great week. Um, and, you know, this is this is part of the problem when you're the incumbent government is uh, you're really asking voters, as Trudeau is, to say, you know, just let me keep on doing what I'm doing, except I want a majority instead of a minority. And that strategy worked with uh, other premiers who went to the polls in pandemics, John Horgan in B.C., Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, Blaine Higgs in, in New Brunswick. Um, didn't work for the guy in Nova Scotia we just saw last week. Uh, the, an incumbent government did lose. Anyways, I think Trudeau had an okay week. It wasn't great. It wasn't spectacular, mostly because we still don't know from him. I, I mean, we were pressing him all week. Wh- what are we doing? Why are we out on the campaign in the middle of the summertime? And his answer to the why now question at the beginning of the week was, well, why not now? You know, we're transitioning to uh, uh, new Canada post-pandemic. Why wouldn't Canadians want to vote on some of the important issues? And, you know, clever answer, I suppose. I don't know what's a compelling one that really motivates people. And on the other side of the ledger, I think Jagmeet Singh had a better week than Trudeau. But strangely enough, I think the best week was the, the, the person who had the best week was Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. And it was a really weird week to watch because they spent a lot of it in a TV studio the party has built in Ottawa, in a hotel in Ottawa. And O'Toole would just beam himself out to virtual town halls. He talked to voters in Ontario, voters in BC, in separate different town halls. He did get on the road. He was he had a he's got a plane too. And uh they touched down in Winnipeg and in Saskatoon and Vancouver and Quebec City. But they spent a lot of it, I think probably three days, um, in their studio in, in Ottawa and, and that's where they'll be tomorrow. Uh O'Toole is out on the West Coast right now. He's just finished up or uh, finished up an event in New Westminster, B C and then uh, he flies back and he's overnight here in Ottawa and then He's in his TV studio. And so it's weird because it's virtual. There's no excitement. There's no rallies. No rallies really anywhere. Um, and yet I think O'Toole had a good week. And here's why I think he had a good week. Because um, they dropped the platform right off the bat. So we got some stuff to talk about. He spent the week talking about policy. So if you think elections ought to be times when we set out some ideas and have some discussions about policy, I, I'd say that O'Toole led the way. A lot of the other campaigns had to respond to the policy ideas that 
O'Toole is putting out. So uh, is it enough for O'Toole to win the campaign? No. But you'd rather have a good week and a strong week starting than, than have people <laughs> have people doing stories about the bus that hit your plane. You know, <laughs> uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh um, uh, dropped his platform even before the, the writ right. was dropped. He did. Correct me if I'm wrong, the Liberals haven't unveiled their platform, have they? No, they haven't. And uh, I'm a little surprised by that, and I'm surprised in this sense, because we have seen, and again, we, I'm using the pandemic election campaigns we've had now in five provinces as political reporters or as political operatives we have a lot of experience on how voters react in a pandemic election and one of the things voters do we've seen this as recently as nova scotia but right back to bc is people start voting as soon as they can either at in-person advanced polls or through mail uh there was just fifty thousand people who voted by mail in 2019 and we expect 5 million people to vote by mail this time around. I've already applied for my mail-in ballot. You can do it online at elections.ca. It's really simple, three-minute process. You just need your you scan of your driver's license or something. That's it. And that means that people are voting now, essentially. Um, you can, you know, as soon as you get your ballot, you can send it right in. You have to write in the name of the candidate that you, you're, you're choosing but that also means that if you're a campaign, if you if you're the conservatives and the Democrats or, or liberals, you should get your platform out fast because people are going to make decisions. They're not going to wait till election day. They're going to start making decisions early, and they're going to lock their ballot in. So, if you're a, as I say, if you're a campaign, it makes sense to do what the conservatives did, which is here's our here's our election platform. Makes sense to do what the NDP did. Here's our platform. So I am a little surprised the Liberals have not produced their platform because they certainly would have known the timing of this election. They're the ones who called it, after all. And um, and just given the different dynamics of a, quote, pandemic election, I'm surprised that they uh, they haven't uh, dropped it yet. Maybe, maybe they'll do that today. I, I doubt it, though. Uh, Trudeau is, um, I think, uh, what time is it now? I'm just trying to do all the time zone changes. I think he's just wrapped up an event in New Brunswick in Miramichi in a riding that, in a riding, I might add, in Atlanta, Canada, that the Conservatives are kind of eyeing. And then uh, Trudeau's going uh, going to Charlottetown uh, for a rally there. I don't think the cons- liberals have anything to worry about in PEI. Four seats, they'll take four seats. And then uh, and then you will see Trudeau do a little campaigning in Atlanta, Canada. But is he going to drop the election platform there? I don't know. But he should do it soon, in my view. Our guest is Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken here on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick in for Roy this weekend. Um, while this campaign is going on, there's a crisis in Afghanistan that mm-hmm. is uh, beyond the percolation stage. Uh, is this helping or hurting Trudeau's re-election efforts? It, it, it's going to be hard to say. I'm not sure a lot of people will move their votes, but that said, it is impacting the election because all the campaigns have had to respond to the events in Afghanistan, and certainly the prime minister's. Um, normally we refer to Justin Trudeau as the liberal leader, but in this case, He's the prime minister of the country, still in charge, of course, of our armed for- or still, yeah, still in charge of our armed forces. And as I said, I was on the road with him all for most of the last week, um, and so was my our colleague Mercedes Stevenson, who, as you know, is like the ace among aces when it comes to reporters on the military. And he was getting pressed. We were both pressing him about the uh, speed at which Canada is moving to help people get out of Afghanistan, and whether there was some thinking that you know our elections had meant that people at the na- at uh, national defense are a little gun shy to make decisions on their own and that is hampering their ability to act quickly uh, mercedes even was reporting on uh, based on her sources you know the americans are stuffing people into their c-17s the big, the big huge uh, cargo planes they're just stuffing as many people as they can get in and get them out 
In Canada, of course, well, we have to have seatbelts for everybody, so we can only take as many people as we have seatbelts. And people are going, what are we doing? Can we, can we please relax the seatbelt requirement and just stuff as many people as we can on the plane? Um, and I understand by the end of the week, it was uh, up to the local commander, in other words, that the person on the ground to decide, uh, yeah, let's just get people out. So all of which is to say, Afghanistan has come up every day on the campaign. Pretty, yes, pretty much every day on the campaign for Trudeau. O'Toole, of course, is is the only leader who is a veteran. He served himself uh, in the Air Force, though he he never was uh, actually in Afghanistan. But he has brought this up. Uh, We had a briefing today from some of the government ministers on this file, the Immigration Minister, Marco Mancino, uh, the Defense Minister, Harjit Sajjan. During an election, ministers are are still ministers, even though no one is technically an MP anymore. Like once the House of Commons is dissolved, you're no longer an MP. But the, the cabinet... Uh, the cabinet continues uh, to hold their position, hold their power, until a new cabinet is sworn in. So the defense minister, Arjit Sajjan, even if the liberals lose the election, he'll be the defense minister until, let's say, Aaron O'Toole wins. Aaron O'Toole swears in his new cabinet. That's the way it works in our system. The United States, Canada, Britain, other foreign countries have brought in several thousand troops to help evacuate foreign citizens and vulnerable Afghans. A former Afghan interpreter who assisted Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan is still working to get those who helped Canadian troops out of the country unscathed. His name is Assad Sharifi, and the former Afghan interpreter, political and cultural advisor to the Canadian Armed Forces joins us now on the Roy Green Show. Assad, hello, how are you today? Uh, good, how are you, sir? Hello no. to you and to your listeners, and thank you for having me on your show. Thank you very much for coming on. Tell us about your experience as an interpreter in Afghanistan. Well, my experience in Afghanistan was pretty uh, interesting, if I tell you. It was very unique. Uh, we were a kind of cultural uh, bridge between the Canadians and the Afghans. So basically, without us, the understanding, cultural understanding, linguistical understanding, political understandings uh, would have been uh, really impossible, if not, uh, you know, very hard. It would be very difficult, if not impossible. How did you become an interpreter? Well, I lived uh, in Canada, so I have been in Canada for about 20 years or so, and uh, I applied here. Canada asked for it and I joined the Canadian forces so I went there and uh, I was serving with uh, uh, actually my first uh, mission was with uh, just you mentioned with Mr. Uh, Dennis uh, Thompson General uh, Dennis Thompson and uh, I was health cultural advisor and then I moved on to uh, uh, General Jonathan one uh, you know the former chief of defense staff and General Milner and so on how difficult is the situation in Afghanistan right now? Well, the situation in Afghanistan is very difficult. It's extremely difficult. The reason for it is not what people think. You know, people just see that, you know, some people will be pr- prosecuted or persecuted or, you know, revenge. But no, this is more about, uh, more than that. It's a hunger. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the government is still not there. There is no functioning government. So people who work for the government are not now all out of job. We had about 300,000, 400,000, uh, you know, all the uh, military and police uh, personnel. They're all out of job. And uh, most of the civilians are out of job. Teachers, you know, anything that government administrators, everybody is out of job. So 
So basically, they have absolutely no income. And that disaster the international community is facing would be uh, hunger in Afghanistan rather than prosecution. But there is some of that going on as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that has been going on, particularly in Kandahar. We have seen some uh, you know, videos and some scenes that people have been executed and people have been um, you know, beaten and people have been uh, humiliated. Uh, those things are absolutely happening and they are a reality. And particularly, uh, women's rights and freedoms uh, are right now under serious uh, threat. We're chatting with Assad Sharifi, former Afghan interpreter, political and cultural advisor to the Canadian Armed Forces here on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick in for Roy this weekend. Tell us about your communications with people in Kabul, in Afghanistan. What are those conversations like? Well, the conversations are a very good question. The conversations are very tense. Uh, people are very, very, very depressed. A lot of people are not leaving their houses. And the banks are closed, so people cannot take even money out to buy food and stuff. And also the airport, what you were just mentioning, is that airport uh, is when the Taliban chase people. They come into the alleys and the streets uh, of, of Kabul around the airport, and people are extremely in trouble with them. Uh, because there are like throng of people just running around in the uh, alleys and stuff, and the local people that live there are actually very scared because they don't know what to expect. Have you managed to help anybody get out of Afghanistan? Well, the whole team is helping them. I mean, the Canadian government brought some people, so I'm not alone. There are other people that, you know, some like General uh, sorry, Lieutenant Colonel Ennis and other people that are helping uh, civilians and former military people to bring some people. We did have a flight that came to Canada and there was 30 or so people on it, but the Canadian government is not going to release uh, the exact information to us yet. Asad Sharifi is our guest. He's a former Afghan interpreter, political and cultural advisor to the Canadian Armed Forces here on the Roy Green Show and the Chorus Radio Network. Rick in for Roy. Is the biggest challenge just getting to the airport? Is that the only way to leave? Well, the borders are closed, uh, absolutely, and I think that the Canadian embassy is closed. The American embassy has moved to the airport, so definitely, you know, people are getting beaten up there. And the good news is that now people have become a little bit more civil, if you will. Uh, they have more uh, formed lions, and they are waiting their, um, uh, their turn. Uh, my cousin, uh, uh, he actually went to the airport the other day, people met him. And they told him that basically he was not qualified because he was a former uh, army colonel and uh, just, you know, he was uh, um, let go recently uh, when the Taliban took over. And uh, he said that they told us that there is nobody here. You have to be invited from Canada. How surprised were you that the Taliban's takeover was that quick? <laughs> it was, I mean, uh, like the entire world is a shock and at awe of how, you know, with the lightning speed they took over Afghanistan and how quickly uh, President Ghani decided that it was, uh, you know, now or never. And I think that was uh, very surprising for all of us. I would never have thought that the Afghan army, the Afghan intelligence, the Afghan police, national police would fall so, so quickly and they would basically vanish in the thin air. So what happened there? 
Well, I think the political will was not there to fight. i be honest. Like, uh, President Ghani did not want to fight. He didn't want to shed the blood. Unlike what Mr. Biden wanted was, uh, Mr. Biden wanted that the Afghan conflict continue, the Americans are going to get out, and then in uh, 90 days or six months, the Afghan government is going to fall, and they are going to, you know, pin the blame on the Afghan forces who have fought hard for 20 years. And then the Americans are going to be free of blame and saying, oh, you know, the Afghan government basically fell. But President Ghani decided, no, if we fall, all three of us would fall. The Afghan government, the um, uh, America, American military, and also uh, NATO. So basically, the three of them together fell together. And that's very significant. So was this a miscalculation, do you think, by President Biden, the Allied forces, or was this a miscommunication? I think it was none of the above. I believe that Mr. Biden had in his mind when he came, I actually wrote on Facebook, I said, may God bless Afghanistan. Mr. Biden always had this agenda because of his uh, attention is now diverted to South Asian Sea. And he is also, uh, you know, more focused on Iran with the nuclear deal and all that. So Afghanistan was really in his rearview mirror. Our guest is Assad Sharifi, the former Afghan interpreter, political and cultural advisor to the Canadian Armed Forces. You're listening to The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Rick in for Roy this weekend. The U.S. has set a deadline of August 31st to get its citizens and up to 20,000 refugees out of the country. Canada has offered to take similar numbers of Afghan refugees as well. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic that that can be done before the deadline? Uh, I am very pessimistic, particularly on Canadian side. Uh, the thing is that uh, Canadians don't even have, uh, honestly, uh, uh, a way forward. They, the people don't know where to apply, how to apply. Uh, they have made it very, very difficult for people uh, to... One is, one is, you know, when you have election right here, and they're you know, announcing we are going to bring 20,000 people so people can vote for them, but another one is, to basically do it and have uh, the, the forms ready, to have the process ready. Canada, Canada has no process. And I am not optimistic at all that they are going to be able to bring 20,000 people in the next year or so. So your guess is that this election has really thrown a wrench into this evacuation plan, at least from Canada's side? Absolutely. I, 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 there is no doubt in my mind. It was very hastily decided that they will bring 20,000 people without putting any mechanism in place to basically how do you want to evacuate these people what is you know your strategy what is your plan uh, you know what is you what what mechanism do you have in place to bring these people on how canada canada doesn't even have uh, anything set up they have for the former interpreters and people who work with the americans but that i'm sorry with, with canadians but not for the 20,000 people that they are talking about when that deadline passes, and again, this is August 31st, so, you know, it's just in a matter of days, really, just over a week. When that deadline passes, what is life going to be like for the people of Afghanistan? A uh, very good question. We don't know. The, 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 the truth and the honest answer is we don't know because there is no administration in Afghanistan. There is no, uh, we don't know what kind of a government will the Taliban bring, who will they, you know, unite with and what kind of laws and order they will bring, what kind of requests they will have from people, what they will expect from women or want from women, what kind of freedoms would be curtailed, and what kind of um, you know, administration they will 
uh, offer the Afghan people and the international community and whether they will be recognized by any country uh, in the world. We, have, we are hearing that China may be the first one to recognize it, but uh, we are still waiting. Russia has no desire to recognize them very quickly. The United States will not. And Canada, they're considered legally as a um, uh, terrorist group, the Taliban, so they will not be recognized in Canada. Now, yesterday we learned that about a 1,000 Afghan refugees have already arrived here in Canada. The U.S., several European countries, uh, India, Pakistan, Iran, uh, Uganda, have also agreed to take in refugees. It's one thing, however, to evacuate Afghans from the war-torn country, but what are the challenges with resettling them? Emily Regan-Wills is an associate professor with the School of Political Studies at the University of, of Ottawa, and she joins us now. Emily, how are you? Good, Derek. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming on. There are tens of thousands of people who are hoping to flee Afghanistan. This is a monumental effort. It really is. And I think it's important to, to recognize that there are a couple things going on simultaneously. What we're seeing in terms of uh, trying to get vulnerable people out of Kabul right now is about trying to identify people who would otherwise have to flee in a much more dangerous circumstance, not that the one they're in right now is dangerous, but getting people who had been very involved or had had roles that could be identified um, with the previous government. But the other side of this is that Afghanistan has been producing refugees for decades, uh, predating even the 2001 war. And so um, in addition to these thousands of people who desperately need to leave directly from Kabul now, we also have uh, at least 2.5 million Afghan refugees worldwide who are outside of Afghanistan and not in a stable situation. So it's a big, challenging, humanitarian uh, situation that we're looking at right now and trying to figure out what Canada can do to intervene. And whenever we hear the term refugees, some people might think that resettling refugees is a drain on the economy, but we've seen quite the opposite. So the uh, economics of this don't lie, which is that refugees uh, usually take a couple of years to get settled, but then become as economically productive as any other segment of society. Um, Refugees usually have particular challenges because of the different circumstances they've been in for use. There's usually some miseducation, so there's a need to get them back on an educational track. But fundamentally, the conditions that create refugees um, hit everybody equally. And so the refugee populations that we resettle include people with degrees, include people with business-owning experience, um, include people who have a wide variety of ways to contribute. So I think they do require... Um, If people are being resettled out of an active conflict zone or out of long-term refugee situations, they need a combination of kind of emotional and material support. I have to say I've been involved in private refugee sponsorship personally for about the last six years, and the people we've resettled, you know, all struggle with the trauma and the, the losses they've faced, but all of them have really settled in wonderfully and are just like every other Canadian at this point. Uh, We only have about 30 seconds. How's the placement of these individuals and families decided? 
Um, so there's a difference between government-sponsored refugees who are distributed kind of across the country where there's capacity to support them, and privately-sponsored refugees who can be resettled anywhere as long as there are people who are there to kind of support them and do a lot of that important work. So I think we're going to see... So we're going to see a distribution of the folks who are going to be coming in to different parts of the country, um, much like we saw with the Syrians. It's not going to be localized to one place. There is some good news from Afghanistan this morning. The federal government says a newly approved air bridge is now being used to help evacuate thousands of people fleeing the country. Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino says Canada has now brought in more than 1,100 people out of Afghanistan on 12 flights and is working to do more. We have reached an airbridge agreement that allows Canadian-bound Afghans to board allied air carriers and, in turn, allied-bound Afghans to board Canadian planes. This means that Canada has the ability to leverage more evacuation capacity through the airbridge jointly established by the coalition. Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan says the 12 Canadian flights have carried out more than 1,000 Afghan people considered most at risk of retribution for their work with Canada and allied countries. So that's the good news. There is some bad news when it comes to those who will not make it out of Afghanistan. After swiftly reclaiming control of the country, the Taliban in the process of trying to form a government. It's also claimed that it will respect women's rights within the norms of Sharia law and forgive those who resisted them. Unsurprisingly, many remain skeptical. Muriad Zai is a senior director at Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan, and she joins us today on The Roy Green Show. Muriad, how are you today? Um, great, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, let's begin with telling our listeners about Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan. What does your organization do? We have been working in Afghanistan for over 20 years, providing educational opportunities and programs for Afghan women and girls and their families uh, all these years. The Taliban has said it will respect women's rights. Do you believe them? Um, uh, I'm afraid to say no. I don't believe what they say because they haven't they haven't shown any flexibility, any change in their action. Their um, their uh, statements in media is very different from realities in Afghanistan. I'm in contact with um, people on the ground, um, and I hear very much different stories of uh, women are not allowed to go back to school, university, uh, they, are, uh, they are sent back uh, home when they try to get into the office. Uh, taxi drivers are warned to not let women uh, get into the taxi to, to travel in the city. Um, uh, there are like many, many stories and examples coming out of Afghanistan every day, and I'm, I'm following that every minute through my contacts inside the country. Let's spend a, a little more time on that. What, what are you hearing from women and girls in the country right now? Are they, are they just in hiding? Uh, most of the women, uh, they are hiding themselves, moving from one location to another, and they, are, they have left everything behind their, uh, their home, their homes and, and uh, whatever assets they had to just keep themselves safe. But then how long they can keep themselves safe if they are not evacuated outside? And the evacuation plan that we are hearing is so different from what's the reality you know, in the ground. Their access to the airport is, 
is completely impossible and uh, the documents are not completed so they don't have the proper documentation and uh, it's a chaos situation women are afraid of their lives and their children and uh, who have been in front lines um, our own staff are stuck there when we cannot give to get them out um, who have been with us for um, some of them even more than 15 years um, so um, yeah, it's, it's totally a different reality on the ground from what we hear in the media. So how, how are we going to get them out? How do they get out? Um, uh, how to get out? Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, uh, it was a failed plan by um, U.S. administration and other governments who tried to pull out Afghans or um, Afghans uh, uh, and uh, with dual citizen, citizenship or the people who worked with them. Um, first of all, the plan wasn't uh, um, well managed. And secondly, now what can be done is that um, um, there should be proper documentation sent to um, and very immediately to the people who are eligible. People who are eligible don't get their documentation on time. There are delays from uh, from government to, to get those documentation. And then they there should be a safe transportation from their location to the airport. There is no way that a family with children can get into the airport. You have seen the footages. Thousands of people are surrounding the airport gate and there are shooting, there are um, violence going on. Um, people died um, um, through shooting and through being under foot of other crowds. So uh, it, it's, it's just make it impossible without documentation, without proper transportation from their location to the inside the gate of the airport. Um, it's impossible that we can rescue who worked with us before the women leaders who are stuck in Kabul. Uh, Mariad Zai is our guest. She's a senior director of Canadian Women for Women in Afghanistan here on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We've seen videos that show mothers sending their children over the gates at Kabul Airport to military personnel, basically asking them to take their children to safety. If that doesn't scream of desperation, I don't know what does. Absolutely. It does. It, it is a message to the world that you could prevent Afghanistan from the chaos situation that's currently going on, but you didn't do enough to prevent that. Um, these mothers are sending so strong message that I want to die, but I want my children to be safe. And the world is not watching. The world is just uh, ignoring their um, yeah, that reality and uh, and and the desperate life they are living in, and they are happy to die in this part of like in this part of the airport, and but let their children to be safely ev- evacuated somewhere else. And in which part of the world can you believe that a parent can do that to separate their children, their infants from from their arms to send it to a country that so that they are safe? And and they are happy to sacrifice their lives. This is a desperate situation. This is a chaos situation. The world should avoid this, should prevent it from now. They did so much wrong, but they should fix it now. It is very tough to watch, that is for sure. Once the August 31st deadline ends, we know that the U.S. and uh, the coalition forces, if you will, have um, you know said by August 31st we want to get... 20,000 refugees into Canada, as, mu- as many in the U.S., the U.K. has pledged that same number as well. Once that day passes, what does the future hold for women and girls under the rule of the Taliban? You know what? Um, 
what you hear from Taliban is uh, about women's rights and, and uh, people's safety in public impunity is just because there are still uh, military forces in, inside, uh, inside Kabul uh, at the airport even. Um, and there are media coverage from everywhere. But once these are closed, like everyone left out, there will be um, um, restrictions on national media. There will be shortages of uh, cut-off internet connections so that people cannot get into their, the, 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 their stories and their reality on the ground to the international community, to the world, of, uh, to the world so that they can do whatever they want and, and all those uh, principles that they talked about, the Sharia law, women's rights under Sharia law. So they will apply that. This means no school, no university, no employment, and uh, forced marriages, uh, execution, massive execution of government employees who, who uh, work with international communities but are left behind because of failure and evacuation plan. Um, this will be a black but in Kabul and other provinces, um, and uh, there is no accountability in the interna- international community. No one is taking um, and, and held responsible for what will happen to the whole nation inside inside Afghanistan. Um, uh, there is a still, still that um, things can be done. Please, I'm pleading to the international community, pressurize on Taliban. Today we are going through a lack of government in Kabul and wh- whoever, wh- whatever they want, they do. So before a, n- a new government is formed, which is so, uh, well, which, which will be a tragedy, so uh, let's stop that. An inclusive government should be uh, formed and international community can pressure uh, on Taliban to form that kind of government. They are now today, they are imposed on us. Taliban are imposed on Afghanistan and Afghan people. But let's try to make it correct by an inclusive government. But before that, evacuate those vulnerable that are at the front line and direct target of Taliban. What Canadians? What can Canadians do to help? Is there anything that we can do? Absolutely. Canadians, you know, from Afghanistan, uh, like for us, uh, we look at Canada as a powerful government, as a very powerful and strong government that uh, have invested in Afghanistan so much in all these 20 years. So um, uh, they can play a significant role in in um, uh, this political settlement, uh, pressurizing um, through um, other countries like United States, uh, European countries, United Nations for forming this political for uh, uh, an inclusive government in Afghanistan. But immediate need for government of Canada is to better plan evacuation, um, uh, try to issue this uh, IRCC permit letter to those who are eligible but stuck inside Kabul and, and they cannot get that letter in hand and also to, to reach to the airport. Some of them, they have that letter, but they cannot reach the airport. They have been there, they have been tortured. They have been injured, but went back home. So what kind of evacuation is that? And who are, are they as Canada only counting the numbers they are uh, pulling out or actually those who are eligible? Mariad, I really appreciate the time. I'm uh, really hopeful that uh, things will work out. Uh, it might be wishful thinking, but that's all we can do at this point. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever 
you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 